you're turning there, let me just say thank you to Jim for preaching the last two weeks. As many of you know, it's been a couple weeks of great upheaval for our family. Our son Dawson was in the hospital in Denver, and so that meant that two weeks ago, Jim was thrust into a last-minute preaching situation. Thankfully, he had a, a sermon ready from Psalm 3, so he preached on that. And then the week after that, we weren't quite sure how it was going to work. I was about 90% done with this sermon, so we were hoping that I'd be back in time to be able to preach this sermon last week. That didn't work out that way, and so Jim had to preach ahead in Acts 9, 19-31. So for those of you who are type A, you are going to be very concerned that we got out of order, and that's okay. I'll be honest, I'm a little concerned about it too. It bothers me as well, um, but we are going to go back today, and I know others of you are going to say, well, the cats are, the, are already out of the bag. We know that Saul was saved. That's true too, and yet I think that this passage will still be encouraging to you this morning. In fact, I'm sure it will be. Um, let me just say this. One of the things that I love about my job is being able to study the Word of God and then open it with you on Sunday mornings. And even in the midst of the turmoil that we have going on in our family, even currently, it's been therapeutic for me to study this passage. And so I'm really confident this morning that it's going to do something in your life too. In fact, to that end, let me pray and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace. It is amazing. And we pray that this morning, as we look at this amazing story of Saul's conversion, that we would be reminded of the grace that is available to us and that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. We pray that this morning our hearts would be filled with gratitude, that we would leave here this morning worshipers, that we would worship knowing that we do not deserve your favor at all. And yet, in your mercy, because you're kind, you sent your son Jesus. And we pray that this morning we would hear that news as if we've heard it for the first time, that we would hear it and that we would be freshly amazed that we could be rescued. Oh Lord, please help us to see your grace clearly today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's probably the most famous hymn in the English language and arguably one of the best known songs worldwide. It's been performed on Broadway in major opera houses everywhere around the globe and at funerals everywhere too. And whether you've heard the song on bagpipes, on the radio, or in a church service, in fact, we sang a rendition of it earlier this morning, there's a good chance you're familiar with it as well. But while most of us know the song Amazing Grace, the story behind this song is not quite as well known. The song was written by a man named John Newton in 1772, and Newton's life bore witness to the title of his song. Born in London in 1725 to a godly mother and an irreligious seafaring father, Newton followed his father to sea at the age of 11. At the age of 18, he was forced into service with the Royal Navy, and throughout, he was a wildly rebellious young man. In his own words, he sinned with a high hand, and he seduced others to do the same. At the age of 20, he was dismissed from the Navy after demonstrating a pattern of rebellious and insubordinate behavior. And for a year and a half, he actually served as a slave of sorts in West Africa under brutal conditions. He was set free from his bondage in 1747, in February of 1747, and began to make his way back to England aboard the British ship, the Greyhound. And it was on that return voyage to England that God began to dramatically intervene in John Newton's life. In March of 1748, a violent storm threatened to sink the ship that he was on, the Greyhound. And in that storm, Newton cried out to God and asked for his mercy. Although Newton would often refer to that later as his moment of conversion, he would also later write that, quote, I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable time afterwards. And in retrospect, when you look back on Newton's life, you understand why you would say that. 
Although God clearly began to do something on that ship in 1748, Newton's life continued to be marked by sin in the years to come. After being rescued from sea and after being rescued from slavery himself, he would go on to become the captain of several slave ships. It wasn't until the mid-1750s, when he was close to 30, that Newton's Christian life truly began to blossom. As he became more involved in Bible study and Christian fellowship, Newton eventually left the slave trade, and in 1764, he actually became a pastor. In his later years, he would become a great outspoken ally, or he would become an outspoken opponent of slavery and a great ally of William Wilberforce, who was a leading force behind Great Britain putting him into the slave trade. Nevertheless, despite all of the good that he would do in his later years, Newton never lost sight of his own wicked past. He was a slave trader and a rebellious young man. It's no wonder then that he was the one to pin the immortal words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. As a former slave trader and as one who lived a wildly disobedient life prior to knowing Christ, Newton was keenly aware he did not deserve God's favor. And until the day he died, Newton would never cease to be amazed that God would not only rescue him from his sin, but he would also give him the honor of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel which he once denounced and reviled. At the end of his life, Newton famously summarized his life by saying this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Indeed, John Newton's life bore witness to the title of his famous song, And I'm convinced that understanding the story behind that song makes the song all the more powerful. John Newton didn't just write about amazing grace. He experienced it. And the reason why I bring up that song this morning is because I think our passage today points to that same amazing grace that John Newton experienced. In fact, while John Newton was indeed a wretched sinner and an unlikely convert, in our passage today, we read about the conversion of another man who I would argue was even more unlikely and even more wretched than John Newton. It's probably the most famous conversion story in all of church history. And like the conversion of John Newton, I think it clearly reminds us of the amazing grace of God. And so my hope this morning is that as we study this passage, and there's a good chance you're familiar with it, that you would be freshly amazed today by God's amazing grace for you. And that that grace would then motivate you to live differently. So Acts 9, verses 1 19, if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand here out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves this is the word of God as such as do our reverence. Words should be on the screen here shortly. If not, you can just listen as I read or follow along in your own Bibles. But Acts 9, starting in verse 1 through the first part of verse 19. Word of God says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And in the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. 
and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So I alluded to just a minute ago, this is probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous conversion story in all of church history. In fact, when I say conversion, I just mean that Saul was going one way, and then he dramatically converted and went another way towards Christ. And no doubt, it is a dramatic conversion. As the passage makes clear, Saul was a violent persecutor of the church. And yet after his encounter on the road to Damascus that we read about here in Acts 9, he was never the same. He would go on to become a prominent leader in the early New Testament church. He would also go on to write about half of the books in the New Testament. Given that reality, it would be hard to overstate the importance of this event in the scope of church history. And in fact, it's so important that Luke will record it three different times in the book of Acts. Not only does he record it here in Acts 9, but he will also go on and retell the story in Acts 22 and Acts 26. So given the repeated emphasis of this particular story, it's obvious that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw this as a critical moment in the history of the church. Saul's conversion, or Paul's conversion, is a major turning point. Now, having said that, let me just clarify something briefly. Let me, let me make a little bit of a side dis- excursion here on the Saul-Paul name change. Because I think there's a popular conception out there that after Saul's conversion, his name changes to Paul as a way of signifying the dramatic change that took place in his life. But actually, I don't think that's true of what we see in the text. You'll notice that even in this account, after Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, Ananias still refers to him as Saul. And in fact, Luke will go on to refer to him 11 more times in the book of Acts as Saul before the subtle shift to Paul takes place in Acts 13, 13. Even the Holy Spirit still refers to Saul as Saul in Acts 13, 2. And perhaps most helpfully in terms of trying to put the, together the puzzle pieces, who is this guy? Is it Saul or is it Paul? In Acts 13, 9, we're simply informed that Saul was also called Paul. I think the most likely explanation then for the Saul-Paul name difference is that Saul was a Hebrew name and Paul was a Greek name. In the same way that my friends in Taiwan have an English name that makes it easier for me to remember their name, Saul likely had a Greek name, Paul, that he would use when operating in the Greek world. And so in Acts 13, when Saul slash Paul begins his ministry in earnest to the Gentiles who would have been primarily Greek-speaking, it's natural that from that point forward, Luke would refer to him by his Greek name, Paul. Now, maybe you don't care about any of that, and that's fair. I understand that in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter all that much if Saul changed his name to Paul here in Acts 9 or if he's just two different names for the same guy. The only reason I bring it up is to avoid some confusion. Who are we talking about here? It's the same person, Saul, Paul, and also I'm trying to help us avoid weird theological conclusions like we should all change our names at the moment of conversion. That said, Saul or Paul's conversion here in Acts 9 is enormously important. And it is one of the most memorable portions in all the scriptures, certainly in the book of Acts. And it's comprised of two main parts. Saul's encounter with Jesus in verses 1 to 9. 
And then Saul's commissioning experience in which he's sent out for ministry by Ananias in verses 10 to 19. Now, because of the more fantastic elements of verses 1 to 9, the brilliant light, the risen Jesus interacting with and calling out to Saul, Saul being blinded by his interaction with Jesus, we tend to focus on those verses more than we do verses 10 to 19. But the reality is that both sections are critical in understanding Saul's conversion. And both sections are important, too, for helping us to understand the nature of salvation. And in fact, it's that nature of salvation and the purpose of salvation that I want us to focus on this morning. Saul's conversion story is not just important because of its importance in church history, although it is. But also it's important because I think it helps us to better understand the nature of salvation and the way that conversion happens and the purpose for which we're saved. Now granted, there are definitely some things that are unique about Saul's conversion in Acts 9. The overwhelming light the encounter with Jesus, the blindness, this mysterious finding a street in the middle of his city, the scales falling from his eyes, all of those things no doubt are unique. But in those unique elements, I think there are some principles here about salvation that we learn that are really helpful for us. And it's those principles of salvation that I want us to focus our attention on this morning. So the first principle is simply this. Regardless of who you are, or what you have done, salvation is possible in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Regardless of who you are, or regardless of what you've done, salvation is possible in Jesus Christ. So let's just be clear about something from the very beginning here. Saul was not a good guy. In fact, look at the way the passage starts in verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now back in chapter 8, we learned that when Stephen was executed, Saul was there and he gave approval to his execution. We also learned that Saul was ravaging the church. That's the language that's used in chapter 8. And he was dragging off both men and women and committing them to prison. Now here, at the beginning of chapter 9, we see that Saul is taking things to another level. Not only is he breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, he's now going to the trouble of securing permission to track them down in in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. Now, Damascus was about 135 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. It was probably about a five or six day journey by foot. So for Saul to be tracking down Christians in Damascus demonstrates the true extent of his hatred for Christians. It's not just that he persecuted Christians as they crossed his path. He was purposely seeking them out, even in faraway lands, in order to see them imprisoned or killed. His hatred for Christians, and thus for Jesus, was real. He was no passive objector to Christianity. He despised Christianity, and he actively persecuted Christians to the full extent that he could. He was hunting them down like a lion tracks down its prey. And yet, it's that same Saul that was breathing out murderous threats and tracking down Christians that Jesus reveals himself to on the road to Damascus. It's that same Saul who would end up becoming a key leader in the church, and it's that same Saul who would end up writing nearly half of the books in the New Testament. Do you realize how crazy that is? Because we're so familiar with the story, I think we often fail to stop and contemplate how incredible it is that Saul would not only be rescued from his sin, but he would become a prominent leader in the early church. 
few years back, I remember some videos coming out that showed Muslim terrorists beheading Christians in the Middle East. Now, I purposely did not watch these videos for a variety of reasons, but I remember reading about them, and I remember being greatly disturbed by what I read. But imagine if one of those terrorists, one of those beheaders came to know Christ and then started living for Christ and proclaiming Christ to everyone he knew and eventually was elevated to a position of leadership in the church. My question is, how would you feel about that? Would you be okay if that guy became your pastor? I think sometimes we read passages like this in the Bible and we read it so casually that we don't actually stop to ponder what's going on here. But what's happening in Acts 9 is incredible. By his own description that he would describe himself with later in the New Testament, Saul was the chief of all sinners, and yet God rescued him and used him to lead the church. That's the equivalent of one of those guys who beheaded Christians in those videos, coming to faith in Christ and then becoming a great leader in the church. Or it'd be like a drug kingpin, turning from their sin to Christ and then becoming a leading theologian in the church. Or it'd be like the leader of a local brothel, finding life in Jesus and then becoming a leading voice in the evangelical world. Listen, no matter who would have encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, it would have been dramatic. But the fact that it was Saul makes it all the more dramatic and all the more powerful. And listen, the fact that it was Saul should encourage every last person in this room Because hear this, if God can save Saul, he can save you too. And he can save your crazy neighbor. And he can save your family member who is as lost as humanly possible. And actually, I think that's part of the reason why God does rescue Saul. To be an encouragement to us. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, Saul or Paul said it this way. He said, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Jesus saved Saul as an example to all of us, that no matter how bad you are, or no matter what you've done, if you come to Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Whether you are a slave trader like John Newton, or whether you are a persecutor of the church like Saul, a Muslim terrorist, or just a person who's done a lot of regrettable things, you can be saved from your sin if only you will turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to cover all of our sins no matter how ugly. So if you're a person who's in this room, and I don't doubt that there are some in this room who ask this question, could God forgive me? The answer to that question is yes. If he can forgive Saul, And make him a leader of the church, he can forgive you too. But you have to recognize your sin and turn to him in faith. And in saying that, I think there's something we need to clarify here. Saul's greatest problem was not that he was a persecutor of the church. His greatest problem was not that he was seeking to murder Christians. His greatest problem was that he had rebelled against the holy God. And that's where Saul's story becomes our story. Now some of us read a story like Saul's and we're encouraged because it means that if God can forgive Saul, he can forgive us too. But others of us read a story like this and we have a hard time relating to Saul because the truth is we're not like Saul. We don't persecute the church like Saul did. We don't actively hate Christians like Saul did. We're not actively involved in murderous plots like Saul was. We're not traveling to faraway lands to drag Christians to jail. We're not doing that. And so because that's the case, some of us read this story and we think, well, that's great that Saul needed rescued, but I don't necessarily need rescue like that. I'm not as bad a guy as Saul was. But again, hear me clearly. Saul's greatest issue 
was not his persecution of the church or his murderous threats or that he was a bad guy. His greatest problem is that he rebelled against the holy God. And that is our greatest issue too. And that's what I mean when I say that his story is our story. Regardless of what bad things you've done or hear me, what bad things you've not done. Your greatest problem is that your sin, and all of us have sinned, not one of us is perfect. Not one of us has perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. All of us have rebelled against God, and our sin has separated us from a holy God. To use the words of Romans 3, we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And as such, hear this, we need rescue just as much as Saul did. But the good news of the passage is, you can be rescued. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and because Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death, if you will come to Jesus in saving faith, you can be rescued. And for that matter, every person, regardless of their past, can be rescued if they come to Christ. And what that means practically then is this. There are no lost causes. You are not a lost cause. Maybe you have a relative whose heart is hard towards God. Or maybe you have a child who's gone wayward. Or maybe you have a coworker who hates Christian truth. They are not lost causes either. Do not give up on them. Instead, pray fervently for them. And keep gently but boldly pointing them to Christ. Saul's conversion helps us to remember there are no lost causes. Saul's conversion, I think, should also motivate us to relentlessly pursue lost sinners in the hopes that God might rescue them. Because the fact is, sometimes he does. Regardless of who you are or what you've done, Salvation is possible in Jesus Christ. And it's possible because of God's mercy. Which brings us to the second principle of salvation that we see in this passage. The salvation is a result of God's gracious and merciful initiative. Look again at verses 3 to 9. Now as he, he being Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now listen, there's simply no way to read what I just read and think, Saul was a pretty good guy. And he was trying to pursue Jesus, and so Jesus chose to reveal himself to Saul. No, that's not what we read here at all. Saul was a bad guy. He wasn't on his way to Damascus to learn more about Jesus. He was on his way to Damascus to drag Christians to prison and potentially even see them executed. His heart was not soft to the good news of Jesus Christ. He was hardened and bitter in his sin, and yet God intervened. The risen Christ appears to Saul, talks to Saul, and eventually opens Saul's eyes to the truth. If you read Acts 9 and think, yeah, Saul was a good guy, he made a good choice to follow Jesus, you're not reading the same account I am. Because that's not Saul's story. Saul was a bad guy. He was not seeking after Jesus. He was seeking to kill Christians. And yet, Jesus seeks after him. Saul's salvation had nothing to do with Saul and his good choices and everything to do with God's gracious initiative. But hear this, that is true for every story of salvation. The only reason that any of us are saved is because of God's gracious initiative in our lives. Ephesians 2 informs us, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people cannot revive themselves. Dead people do not do CPR on themselves. Someone else has to revive them. 
And in salvation, that's what had to happen for us. The Holy Spirit had to open our eyes. The Holy Spirit had to convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit had to give us new life. It's not what we do or the choices we make. It's God's gracious initiative that rescues us. Listen, I've shared this before. I became a follower of Christ in the fall of 1999. And let me assure you of this. The only reason that happened was because of the grace of God. It's not that all of a sudden I got smarter in 1999. It's not like in 1998 I was just really dumb. And then in 1999 I got really smart. I was dumb all the way throughout, right? I did not have anything happen that I all of a sudden became wiser. I was lost in my sin. I was blind. But God was gracious. He put Mark Walter into my life who shared the good news of Christ with me. And God opened my eyes to the truth that I'd heard before, but I heard it afresh for the first time that I was a sinner and Christ was a great Savior. The only reason I was rescued is because God rescued me. In fact, the only reason any of us are rescued is because of God's gracious and merciful initiative. It's not what we did, it's what He did. I was recently listening to a clip from a sermon by a pastor named Alistair Begg. In the clip, Begg was talking about standing before the throne of judgment. And he was saying that if on that day when asked, why should you be let into heaven? If your response to that question starts in the first person, I believe this, I was baptized, I went to church, I was a good person, he's saying that's the wrong response. The answer to the question of why should we be let into heaven always should start in the third person. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead and conquered death. He pursued me and rescued me. Our salvation is a result of Christ's work, not our own. Our salvation is a result of God's gracious initiative. Now to be sure, hear me clearly because I don't want to be misunderstood. We must respond to the gospel message. God's gracious initiative does not imply that we are passive bystanders or that we're like robots being dragged along against our will. I don't want to become a Christian, but I have to. That's not the way it works. Even in this passage, Saul has to choose to respond to the Lord Jesus. In the same way, we must respond to the gospel message too. We must choose to follow Christ. But salvation is ultimately a result of God's gracious initiative. Even our choosing, I would argue, is a work of the Holy Spirit. And that should produce in us gratitude and humility. We don't deserve it, but he rescued us anyway. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not what we did, it's what he did. Salvation is a result of God's gracious and merciful initiative. But God doesn't just save us, he saves us unto something, which brings us to the third principle. That God saves us unto a purpose. Look at verses 10 to 19 here. Now there is a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. In the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So here's the question I want you to consider from verses 10 to 19. Why does God choose to use Ananias 
to help Saul regain his sight and to give Saul his commission for ministry. Obviously, Jesus was personally interacting with Saul on the road to Damascus. So Jesus himself could have easily done both of those things. He could have easily restored Saul's sight. He could have easily given Saul's commission for ministry. So why use Ananias? Now, before I answer that question, I think it's fair to say that Ananias is probably one of the great unsung heroes of the Bible. Put yourself in Ananias' shoes for a second here. He's being called to go and pray for a man who's been tracking down and killing Christians. Again, to use a modern equivalent, imagine if God led you to go to a neighborhood that was known to harbor terrorists. And he told you to go and lay hands on one of the men who'd been beheading Christians and pray for them and commission them for ministry with no evidence to this point that they've actually changed. How would you feel in that moment? I think Ananias' comments in verses 13 and 14 are perfectly normal and exactly what you would expect. Ananias essentially says this, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, okay, Lord, I know you want me to go and talk to this guy named Saul. I know you want me to pray for him, but I just want to make sure I have this straight here. The same Saul who's been killing Christians and torturing, the same Saul who came to Damascus to arrest Christians, I just want to make sure, is that the one we're talking about? Is this the one that I'm supposed to go and pray for? To Ananias' credit, when the Lord confirms this, he goes. Now, I completely understand Ananias' hesitation. And if you were in that boat, I'm sure you would be hesitant too. And yet, Ananias gets confirmation and he goes. Now, the question again is this, why use Ananias? Here's what I think the answer is. I think the answer is that God uses Ananias to help Saul understand that he's being called to be a part of a body of believers. In other words, one of the purposes of Saul's salvation is that he's called to be a part of the church. I want you to listen again to the language of verse 17. I think this is extraordinarily profound. Verse 17, remember, he's just been told to go. So verse 17 says this, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to me to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've had a couple weeks to think about this passage, and I can't help. I've been choked up multiple times thinking about what Ananias says to Saul in verse 17. Again, he's praying for a man who came to Damascus to kill Christians, and yet how does he address him? He doesn't say, all right, you rascal Saul, let's pray. Instead, what he says is, brother. The first words out of his mouth when he prays for Saul, brother Saul. That's powerful. Hear this, when we're saved, we are not saved to be Lone Ranger Christians. We are saved to be a part of the family of God. We are saved to be a part of the body, the church. And to be clear, it is the body of Christ. In fact, I want you to go back to verses 4 and 5 for a second. I want you to notice something here. Verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now remember, Saul had been persecuting the church, and he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. And yet, what does Jesus say to him? He says, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Furthermore, when Jesus reveals himself to Saul, he refers to himself as Jesus, the one you are persecuting. In both of those statements, Jesus is demonstrating his unity with the church to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus because the church is his body. Now listen, I know it's popular today to run down the church, whether on social media 
or podcasts or internet blogs, there are many who've made a sport of bashing the church. And without question, there are some really messed up churches out there. In fact, many churches that claim to be churches that aren't actually churches at all. And many of those churches no doubt deserve our scorn. Furthermore, there's not one church that's perfect. And every church is subject to some just criticism, including this one. But having said all that, let us never forget that the church is the bride of Christ. And we are his body. And it's demonstrated by the interaction here between Saul and Ananias. One of the purposes of our salvation is that we are called to be a part of that body. So listen, if you are a Lone Ranger Christian who simply attends on Sunday but then neglects the body throughout the rest of the week, I might ask you this. Is it possible you're missing out on one of the great blessings and one of the purposes of your salvation, which is to belong to a body? God doesn't just rescue us to be individuals living for ourselves. He rescues us to be a part of his body. And let me personally testify to something this morning. Being a part of the body of Christ is one of the most tangible ways we can experience the love of Christ. The last couple of weeks have been very difficult for our family. But one of the things that has sustained us, and I say this in all sincerity, one of the things that has sustained us is you. A couple weeks ago, Tony was in the infusion center for another one of Dawson's infusions. That day, people had been reaching out and praying, offering to make meals, loving us in some very tangible ways. And Tanya sent me this text. I'm just going to read it. She said, our church body really is incredible. I never felt alone in any of this process. We are extremely blessed to be where we are during this season. Now, let me clarify something. Tony didn't send that to me so that I would have a future sermon illustration. And when I got that text, I didn't think, oh, this is great. I'll be able to share this someday. No, my first response is, that's true. I could not agree more. The church may not be perfect, even this one, but it is the body of Christ. It's one of the means that God uses to sustain us in our faith and to keep us going. And no doubt we are saved to be a part of it. So if you're sitting on the fence in terms of church involvement, let me encourage you this morning, take the plunge. The church may disappoint you and let you down. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, it will let you down. But we're not meant to do this alone. We are called to be a part of the body. The idea that we would just be consumers and not be jumping all in as part of the body is something that's inconsistent with the New Testament. For example, I know it's becoming more and more popular today for people to say, well, we can just watch church online. Or, you know, we can just listen to a podcast. We can listen to some celebrity pastor on a podcast, and that'll be sufficient for our Christian growth. But we were not merely called to listen to sermons. We were not merely called to watch as a worship team led on a screen. We were called to be a part of his body. We were called to be with one another and to encourage one another and to walk with one another as we're going through the highs and lows of life. We are saved to be a part of the church. But hear this, we are also saved to make Jesus known. Verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now listen, I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus and I were trying to make a sales pitch about joining the team, this is probably not the angle I would have come from. Jesus' approach here is kind of like someone offering you a job and saying, hey, here's the job, but just so you know, most of the time the customers are just going to yell at you. Or it'd be like a coach telling your crew, yeah, you should come to the team, but I just want you to know, the fans are probably really going to dislike you personally. In fact, they'll probably boo you every opportunity they get. This doesn't exactly seem like salesmanship 101 by Jesus. Oh yeah, tell them how much he's going to suffer for me. 
And yet the fact that Jesus says what he does here, I think tells us two things. One, Jesus is honest. Two, living for the glory of Christ and making Christ known must, must be so great that it's worth the suffering. Listen, I meet a lot of people these days who seem wholly unsatisfied with their lives. Sadly, even many Christians. But perhaps the reason why that's the case is because we as a people have lost sight of the purpose for which we were created and saved. We were created for the glory of God. And we were rescued in order that we might testify to the one who brought us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. So let's recover that purpose And let's remember why we were rescued so that we might testify to his greatness. So that we might share the good news with others. Listen, God doesn't just rescue us so that we can have a cool conversion story to share. He rescues us to be a part of a body and he rescues us so that we can make him known. And understanding that is one of the great values of this passage. Saul's conversion helps us understand we were saved for purpose. It also helps us to see that regardless of what we've done, Salvation is possible in Jesus Christ. But more than anything else, I would say this about this particular passage. Saul's conversion reminds us that salvation is a result of the grace of God. And that grace is indeed amazing. So whether it be a former slave trader like John Newton, or a persecutor of the church like Saul, or just random people like us living in Nebraska, if we are followers of Christ, we can safely say and sing, Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace that is so abundant. And we pray that we would focus on that grace this morning. That we would remember that there's nothing that we did to earn your favor. It was by grace that we've been saved. And that we would be filled with gratitude because of that, and that we would desire to live together to make Christ known. That you would help us to see the great value of being a part of your body and declaring your goodness to those around us. That we would be humble and grateful people, recognizing that there's nothing we did to earn salvation. It's everything you did. So Lord, please help us this morning to remember your great grace and to worship you accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. So in light of what we've talked about today, I've actually asked if Anna could come up and lead us here. I think it's fitting that we would uh, end our service by singing just a few bars here from Amazing Grace. That we would not just think about what we read, but we would actively worship in response to this. That we would see the amazing grace that God has given to us. So, if Anna is here, there she is. Oh, you're snuck up behind me. I was wondering, where is Anna? But you're right here. That's great. Thank you. Let's stand.
1 Timothy 1, Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week.